Hi folks, this is Jack Spierka with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of a changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. Today is March the 20th, 2015, and it's Friday, Friday, Friday. That's right, you're day to make your calls to me. Actually, the day I get go through the calls you've made to me in the prior week and pick out sometimes as many as 12. Today, I'm going with a shorter show. I've only got seven plus one from the expert council because i got to get ready for the big work with Jack weekend tomorrow. That'll be fun. Uh, i gotta got to pull the pork. It's all cooked now, but it's got to be pulled and mixed with its wonderful juices and the onions that it cooked down with and all the stuff that if you're coming tomorrow, you're going to get to eat and you're going to be like, wow, Jack really is a badass cook. I don't say a lot of great stuff about myself, but one thing I do know my way around is a pork roast. Anyway, before I get to today's show, I just want to let you know if you're coming tomorrow, first of all, for everybody, tomorrow is dun, 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 the first day of spring. Yes, 3-21-15, the spring equinox, and uh, that means that you have pretty much equal time of day and light, and the days get longer from here. All the way to this summer solstice of June 21, which will be the first day of dun, 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 summer, except we know in much of the country we'll be sweating our brains out in just a few weeks. Anyway, um, if you are coming tomorrow, by now you should have a, a thing in your email box with a document that tells you how to get here, my cell phone number, all of that stuff. And uh, it's probably crazy of me to do it, but there's a link in today's show notes for that document in case you didn't get it for any reason. I'll probably remove that after today, but I just want to make sure that anybody come and gets you know directions and stuff like that. If you get a hold of my cell number, please don't abuse it. I'd really prefer that you didn't, and I don't have to like I don't know set auto forward for your call to like I don't know one clown that got a hold of it. I said it so when he tries to call me, he gets the CIA. Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> Before we get into your calls, let's take care of our sponsors. Sponsor of the day number one is Fortress Defense Consultants. Hey, look, if you uh, if you want to carry a weapon in today's modern society, I, I think you should, if it's at all legally possible for you. But I should all, I also think you should be really responsible with that, and not just from a responsibility standpoint. How about an effectiveness standpoint? How about you're in an altercation and you're not sure whether you should draw your weapon or not? How about you're in an altercation and you draw your weapon and you take out the bad guy? Now what? How do you not get yourself shot? That's always a risk that a lot of armed citizens don't really think about. Shooting starts going off and you're there holding a gun without a great big uniform that says police officer. What do you do immediately after the discharge of that weapon? How do you make sure that you protect those around you? How do you make sure that you're ready in the unfortunate event that it comes down to this? Well, you get professional training from people like Frank Sharp Jr. at Fortress Defense Consultants. Everyone that's been there has told me how outstanding the training is, and I don't doubt it because Frank and his cadre of instructors are perpetual students taking multiple classes each year to stay at the top of their game, realizing if you don't continue to improve on that sliding scale, you have one place to go, and that is in decline. So check them out today, FortressDefense.com. Next up, hey... Look, I'll tell you what, this is the survival podcast, and you know there's one thing we all need, that we absolutely all need, and we will die without it, that's water. Good quality drinking water, bathing water, et cetera, is the most important prep you can make, and all you have to do is deal without water for a day to realize that. So why not get over to Directive 21, which is the website of Jeff, the Berkey guy, Gleason, and get yourself a Berkey system, and if you already have one, and it's taken a little bit too long now for that water to get from the top to the bottom. Maybe it's time to replace those black Berkey elements. You can get those from Jeff as well. He's maniacal with his customer service. He also has a lot of other great stuff for your prepping needs. Again, his website, directive21.com. And if you're a Berkey owner like me, the next time you get a set of filters, get the primer bulb that he has available now. It makes your life so much easier when uh, you've either cleaned your filters or are putting new ones in to get a good prime on them. 
They're awesome. Remember, the Berkey not only looks great, it is uh, pretty much bulletproof. It has no moving parts. Works by gravity, and it always works. The time to start purifying your water isn't after the water company says, Hey, we've issued a boiled water advisory because we screwed something up a week ago and figured it out now. It's all the time. Drink the best quality water you can at the best price per gallon you can you can make it happen at. And the best way I know that to do that is with a Berkey. Next up, let's take a look at the year that was the episode. We have the year 1539. Three really interesting ones we have. When race really matters, the Rodee races begin, the Tampa Bay of Pigs, and the Gutenberg Press comes to America. I'm going to read the Gutenberg Press one. Um, I have an interesting observation here with it that doesn't really seem like it's direct to it, which I think is cool. Um, and Alex has his take, of course, as always, that is more of a direct applicable one. So the Gutenberg Press comes to the Americas. The Bishop of Mexico has convinced the largest printing company in Seville, Spain, to open a branch office in Mexico City. Juan Kropenberger sends his branch manager, an Italian printer, to the Americas. His first project is a catechism for the Indians, an introduction for the Catholic faith. Uh, other printing projects will include government notices, various pamphlets, small books, supporting church services. My take by Alex Shrugged. The first news report from the Americas was printed in 1541 when a severe earthquake hit Guatemala. The headline was, Report of the Terrifying Earthquake, which has recurred in the Indies in a city called Guatemala. Good headline. You almost don't need to read the story. A second printing press won't be brought to the Americas until 1584. Four, when a fellow named Ricardo will open a print shop in Lima, Peru. Um, my observation here, the Bishop of Mexico. Hmm, how did that happen? So, we've only been coming to the New World in earnest now for about 50 years at this point. We have a Bishop of Mexico. Um, if I go above there and look at the Tampa Bay of Pigs, Hernando de Soto is the new governor of Cuba. And as we've been reading this, we hear governor of this, mayor of that, overseer of whatnot, bishop. And understand at the time, a bishop wasn't just a, a guy that came to your Catholic church once a year to do a special mass or presided over uh, you know confirmation or something like that a bishop was a former a form of governor of an area because the church had a tremendous amount of power though it was being weakened by the Lutheran uh, revolution at this point this the Catholic Church still was a a state onto itself so What I get out of all of this as we've been going through this, and I never really thought about this before, but from the day Columbus land on the first island in the West Indies all the way through to the formation of the colonies, the very first action of the people that came here was the installation of a state. In some parts of the New World, as we, they called it at the time, um, there were fairly organized groups like the Incas that had created their own version of the state. But in a great deal of the Americas, especially North America, there was a stateless society, people that lived in a state of anarchy and did so quite well. People say, where did anarchy ever work? Well, it worked right here in North America until we came and installed a state. There were certain alliances like the League of Five Nations, but they weren't the type of state that you think of today. In fact, there was a, a, a thing called the Great Law of Peace that we'll learn about in later episodes of the Survival Podcast as we move forward in history that had a great deal of impact on Jefferson's authoring of the Declaration of Independence. Many people don't know that as well. But it seems that As Europeans, when we got here, not only was it the desire of the rulers back over the ocean to control this new piece of ground, but everybody went along with it. Some because they were offered power, but I believe it was because by this point already in history, humans had been so programmed, at least Western humans had been so programmed, to exist under a state. They couldn't understand how you would do so without one. That's how long our programming's been there. That's why it's so hard to let go of. My take by Jack Spirico. With that, do consider joining my member support brigade. You'll help support the show at 18.3 cents 
per episode if you join at a full price. If you have recently had your membership expire, remember, if you email me this week, which is soon running out with TSP expired, it, TSPC expired in the subject line, I'll send you a special discount code. This isn't going on the blog. It's only on the air. And if you tell me that you didn't get to hear it until le next Monday, I'm sorry, it will expire the expired win back. But I had a lot of people recently expired a lot due to pay, change payment methods and stuff like that. So the loyal listeners, I'm doing a crazy discount, a crazy discount right now for you guys that uh, that have expired memberships that want to come back. If you want that discount code, just email me, jack at the survivalpodcast.com, TSPC expired in the subject line. Give me your username so I can verify that you do, in fact, have an account And that you are, in fact, expired because some of you guys think you are and maybe you have two accounts and I don't want you paying twice or whatever. Anyway, with that, let's go ahead and uh, take our first call of the day. Jack, this is Jason from Tulsa, Oklahoma. Hey, uh, got a question about ducks. At what point do you switch feeding your ducks uh, uh, starter to uh, like a regular uh, ration or whatever? Anyway, talk to you soon. Thank you. Well, I can tell you for us, it is about 10 weeks that we do that. And we do that because the primary rapid growth of the birds has already occurred. And the only big difference between chick starter and what our birds get as a main feed source is more protein. And that protein is to assist in fueling the rapid growth period for the birds. If you're running ducks for me, and this is like, you know, I don't ever really debate my guests, but like this is a deficiency in what the 50 ducks and a hot tub guy was doing yesterday with meat birds. So he's running these birds from spring all the way to late fall before he's harvesting his meat birds. Ducks reach a harvest weight at about 11 to 14 weeks, depending on breed. Every week that you feed a duck that you're going to consume after that is a net loss in food to protein conversion. It's not that they won't get any bigger, but you're, you're, you're probably looking at the last 10% of body size added on for most breeds at that point. Now, some grow a little slower, uh, so you might have to go a little longer, but most of them that grow a little slower that you go a little longer with are not your optimum meat breeds. They're going to be your optimum laying breeds that are small carcasses anyway, like khaki camels and dedicated layers. So if you look at it that way, it's about the same point in time that you would end up harvesting young ducks for meat. So you fuel that rapid growth, and then the, so you have this amazing growth curve. And those who watch the Duck Chronicles know, I mean, the, from day one to day four, they double their weight twice. They need fuel for that, for that rapid growth stage. By the time you're looking at even eight weeks, you've got ducks that you can have out on pasture. They're running around. They're foraging. They're eating worms. They're, they, they don't really need anything else. As a practical matter as well, no matter how old they are, once I put them with the adult birds, they're going to eat that. They're going to eat you know a normal thing. And then think about this. You have ducks. They brood their own babies. How in the hell would you ever make sure the babies ate a different food than the adults? So they're probably going to be on a 2% less protein ration. And you know what? They end up doing just fine. This is one of those things that we really overthink. The added protein infusion to fuel the rapid growth is most important when we're taking a group of birds and we're bringing them up to a slaughter weight rapidly. And we want to support that growth curve. Dropping two points of protein off from a bird that's running around eating everything from grasshoppers to slugs to grubs... Isn't really that big a deal. So if you're free-ranging your birds, you don't even worry about it. And again, to me, the minute that I take the birds and move them to be with the adults, everybody's on the same food. It's just too much of a headache to try to do anything else. I'm sure there's plenty of people that will tell me how wrong and horrible that is and how the ducks of the world will slip into a vortex of doom because I've done this. But it just doesn't happen. And if you think about it, and all the parks cross country full of Muscovy ducks... Those little babies come up mostly on whatever they can forage, whatever mom leaves them to, and white bread that kids throw to them. So with that, let's go ahead and take another call. Hey, Jack. I have a question about the best um, plant to use as a ground cover to replace grass. 
backstory is I'm starting a permaculture consultant business here in Jersey City and New Jersey. And just to get my name out there and just to do a little uh, service to the community for rain runoff, I'm trying to replace grass uh, with a good cover crop. I was thinking something like um, clover or what have you. So any advice would be greatly appreciated. Thank you and love what you're doing. Bye. In your climate, you cannot do better than good old-fashioned white clover, um, either Dutch white or New Zealand white or a mix. And you can throw some other clovers in there. You can bring in some plantain or some chicory, depending on how open your customer is to that. But I would get off the whole concept of let's replace the grass with this. Let's leave the grass alone and let's integrate this. In fact, maybe we can even bring in some varieties of perennial grasses, multiple varieties. Grass is not bad. Grass is not evil. And grass interplanted with things like clover is wonderful. And it does a great job, and it needs so much less irrigation when you do that. So if you think about something like chicory being planted in there, it is a great huge taproot. And that plant's going to go down and mine that. Plantain does very similar. And it's going to mine water and, and minerals and bring it up and transpire it out of its, its leaves. And when it's cut or mowed or grazed or whatever, it's going to deposit that and return it back to the ground. But the if you want the single best plant for New Jersey, Dutch white clover. And the, the, the lawn will never, if, you know, the more clover that's there, the less mowing you'll need. Because it's only going to grow six, seven inches tall anyway. At, at its height, and it's going to put flowers on. And if you can get your customers, leave the flowers there. Don't worry that there's flowers in your yard and you need to mow it to get rid of them. They're evil. Um, clover is just so wonderful for so many reasons. And if you have clients who are gardeners that want green matter for their compost, you know, let that stuff grow really up. Let it to where, you know, it's, it really needs to go ahead and be cut because the flowers are deadheading. And by cutting it, you'll recharge and get another flush of flowers for the bees. And right about that point, get the old bagging lawnmower out and go through there and mow that stuff and take that green matter and put it right in your compost. I'm talking big time nitrogen yield. Uh, awesome stuff. Breaks down well. Good hot composting green matter. So I would go straight to the clover with this, but let's integrate it with grasses. Let's not try to eliminate grass. Grass-clover mix is just outstanding for everything from a front yard to a chicken pasture to a duck pasture to a cow pasture. And all you're going to change with, you know, there's what else goes with it as you move up in, in animal size. Um, wonderful stuff. Let's take another call. Good morning, Jack. This is Michael from springtime Ontario I had a question regarding determining the amount of long-term food storage and double canning the details we've been practicing what you've been preaching for some time now double canning and building up a large pantry uh, I've done a fairly good job at it I think and I've supplemented with some long-term freeze-dried foods uh, some quick emergency foods as well as a couple of standard five-gallon buckets of rice and beans, etc. My question is specifically regarding how do I determine how much I have and how much is enough? And I know the easy question is to say, well, just keep going, but for budgetary reasons, I would like to shift my money over to other areas of uh, preparations which have been neglected thus far, and I want to determine is, my, is what I have sufficient? We are a family of two adults and two children, and I know it's hard to determine because the analytical side of me says, well, we should be calculating calories and grams of protein and serving sizes, et cetera, et cetera. But I think those kind of calculations, given the variety of foods that I have, would drive even the most capable mathematician mad. I'm just wondering if you have a quick and dirty method of determining, do I have two months, three months, six months, etc. cetera, uh, something that I could kind of take back and take a look at my storage and determine, can I build more or should I be satisfied with what I have for now? Thanks for the answer, Jack, and any help you can provide, and thanks for what you do. Talk to you later. 
I'll try to help you with this, but to get you in the right mindset so you can just do it for yourself, depending on who you are and whoever's listening to this you know, show today can do it for themselves, let me change it this way. How do you decide what level of insurance to place on your life? How do you decide what level of insurance to place on your business? How do you decide what level of insurance to place on your car beyond what the state says you absolutely have to have? How do you determine in any instance where you insure yourself how much money I'm going to spend in return for how much coverage I need? And in the end, there's all these guidelines and what other people say, but in the end, it comes down to your personal risk tolerance and what you think you need. So you might have a financial advisor who says, you need a $4 million term life policy. You might go, with the assets we have, the way things are set up, I don't think I need to have a $4 million life insurance policy. I'd rather have a, a half million dollar life insurance policy, take all the rest of this money and continue to invest it because my likelihood of dying anytime soon is pretty low. And if I need to have a lot of money in my life insurance, maybe I'll choose a different type of insurance for the other $3 million, like accidental death insurance, which is cheap. Because if I'm in my 30s, the most likely way that I'm going to die between 30 and 40 is from accidental death. So if I take all of the extra money and invest that or just even save it, I'm probably ahead for myself. If I don't die, then I'm still covering my seat. You, you make a determination based on your own risk assessment. So what you really need to do is determine for yourself how long do you feel that you need to be able to sustain yourself and your family on backup rations to feel that you have enough food insurance for your personal life. For many people, it's 30 to 60 days. And I know the hardcore, I live in the middle of a mountain bunker survivalists say, that's not enough. When the Illuminati comes, well, they can just go on the shelf, all right? Because they're not you. And I'm not putting them down. I'm just saying that's not who you are. I can tell by listening to you that's not who you are. So for some people, it's 90 days. I'm kind of more toward the six-month-ish thing, but that's me. So... You figure out how long you need to be able to sustain yourself. You do a basic caloric calculation for your family. How many calories a day does dad eat? How many does mom eat? How many do the kids eat? If we ration that back, let's say by 10%, so you, you actually track your own caloric intake. This might put you on a diet, by the way, for a couple weeks. And you actually, you know, just write, use your food journal. Write down everything you eat and say, Mom ate X. Don't tell her you did it. She'll be pissed at you. Kids ate Y. Dad ate Z. And then you say, so we need a total of X calories per day. And if I want 30 days of insurance, I need 30 times that number. I need X amount of calories. And then we go do an audit of all the stuff in your long-term storage that you're rotating through and say we have Y amount of calories. And we subtract and we get a difference. Either we get a difference in the negative, I need to add 5,000 more, 10,000 more, 20,000 more calories, or we get a, a, a difference in the positive. The amount needed was less than the amount that I have in my bank. And then I just say, okay, if I need X a day, let's take the total and divide it. How many days do I currently have? And you might find, well, I want 60 and I have 75. Well, you're good. I wouldn't recommend cutting it back down to 60. Right? I'd say, okay, let's, let's maintain, let's maintain what we have. But that's what you really need to do. How long will this carry you forward in time? Now, will this be 60 days of eating sirloin steak and stuff like that? No. This is going to be 60 days of eating, let's call it gruel and canned beans. Uh, but it will sustain you. Now, here's the beauty. If you have that 60 day insurance plan, if you're also gardening, foraging, etc., that extends it. So 60 days of pure food storage with just basic gardening and what have you is probably, you know, 120 days. You could probably produce two months worth of food as long as you don't get hit in the middle of, you know, winter, uh, especially where you're at, right? But it's there. And then the other way that's more practical to look at it is if we lost, if we were a two-income family and we lost one income, and we went to our stores, and we parted them out over six months to cut our our grocery bill back. We could probably do that and continue to buy food and go to the grocery store on whatever's left. Our savings, mom's salary if dad loses, dad's if mom loses, unemployment, and getting back on our feet. And now we have this nice cushion 
of expense reduction built into our system until we get back on our feet and then we resupply it just like an emergency fund. So if you, if you start managing your food storage the same way you manage a financial emergency fund, it gets really clear because what, what is the number one recommendation for most financial advisors that are actually advisors versus liars as to what your emergency fund should be? And it's 90 days. If we take three months of our expenses and put them into a savings account where it's not at risk and it's not held up in some kind of retirement thing that I can't get to without penalties, etc., I'm going to get through most financial emergencies. Well, if I put 90 days worth of food storage with that 90-day emergency fund, they both last longer because I don't have to feed myself. There's an old saying, if we didn't have to feed ourselves, we'd all be wealthy. I don't know if it's true, but it does make a point. So that's what I'm going to advise you to do. Do an audit of the caloric bank you've built and, and, then, and then divide that by the number of calories you need to sustain your family per day, and that gives you a time banking number, and then determine if that's enough for your particular risk tolerance. And it's that simple. Let's take another call. Hi, Jack. This is Ben from South Carolina. What are some good options for quickly establishing some erosion control on a three-quarter acre, moderately sloping pasture? Here are the details. We have an acre and a half pasture area that's about half trees in one area and half red clay in the other. Ultimately, we want the red clay area to be a pasture for the two goats and two large dogs that live there. Right now, when it rains, the red clay becomes a muddy mess. Swills are not a good option for us in this area because the pasture is directly over a septic drain field. What would be the best way to get something established quickly this spring? We're thinking maybe seeding with grass or seeding with a cover crop, just something to, to help get things locked in place and so it's not so muddy. So what do you think would be some good options? Thank you very much for your help. We really appreciate it. All right, you're, you're a little marginal on three quarters for two goats, but it's probably not a big deal. The dogs are just going to poop there and take care of the goats. You're going to have to panic shift the goats. You're going to have to panic shift the goats. You cannot just take two goats and put them on three quarters of an acre, even once it's in good pasture, and just let them go anywhere they want and end up with a, uh, with a, a well-managed pasture. Uh, you're going to have to break that up into at least five to six rotational areas and move those goats around with ElectroNet or something like that. So let's get that out of the way. Um, swales would be the first thing. Even micro swales would be the first thing that I would recommend. Um, but, okay, I understand you know, you're sitting over laterals or something like that with a septic system, and you certainly don't want to overhydrate the property. Um, you know, like basically flood out the septic. So if you infiltrate too much water, you can have a problem. What we actually want to do is slow the water down. There's a, there's a couple ways we can do this. Let's say we have a big supply of free things like rocks laying around somewhere. One thing you could do is get out and mark contour lines. Don't, don't worry about swelling. We're not going to swell it. And then along the contour lines, just put rocks. Space your contour lines 30 feet apart, and the rocks will slow down the water. You can either put them touching each other, or you can put maybe a one-inch gap between them, and as that water comes down, great, it hits the rocks, it slows them down, and it's like these little, like little micro-check dams all the way down. We could do that. Another thing we could do, if we have access to some fill dirt, put the rocks in place, put them touching each other along the contour lines. Only building up about two inches tapering back into the slope. You're not going to use that much fill dirt. Come in and put micro terraces over top of this. That'll also reduce your erosion. So those are two types of earthwork-ish things that could be done that would not oversaturate the property, that would not involve digging down into the earth, that are really low-cost, low-tech, and easy and, and workable. If you have access to enough fill dirt, you instead of putting swales in, could put microberms on or slightly off contour. I'll get the off contour option in a minute because it's probably the better one. So what that would be is instead of having a swell that goes down, you just have a small microberm that comes up. And I'm talking two to four inches center height, relatively flat. I mean, something you build with a wheelbarrow. And that, again, gives you a texture thing. Now, 
across three quarters of an acre. You do not have a septic drain field across the entire three quarters of an acre. It's just not the case. If you do, you have a septic drain field for an apartment complex. They're just not that big. Uh, usually around a tenth of an acre, which means you have a, a specific area where you really don't want to oversaturate things. So if we were to build our contour lines on a key line design like, it wouldn't be exactly key line because we're not locating the key point, what have you, where we just take, when we're over the septic, we go maybe a quarter percent to a half a percent off contour, downgrade, away from the septic, And then when we get below the septic leach field, we go ahead and bring the water back up, and we do that all the way down through. We begin to really infiltrate the water off of the leach field. We slow it down. It's still allowed to move along and go on its way and what have you. So those are different types of earthworks that will immediately have a result. But the number one thing you need is vegetation. Um, unless this is like super steep, if you get in there, and now would be a good time, and seed it with as much diversity and variety of perennial pastured plant types that you can get in there, along with some quick-growing annuals to hold things in place, like an annual ryegrass that will summer kill and let the perennial success over it, you are a lot closer to a home run than anything else. The micro-earthworks with it will kind of speed things up for you. Um... I would also suggest investing some money in some straw and getting a straw layer over the seed. You probably aren't going to till or disc over a septic system, right? So you're going to be throwing the seed down and it rains and then the seed washes away. So if you can get your microberms in or whatever, or your rocks in or whatever, and then get your seed down and then get a straw mulch layer over that and then let the rain work for you instead of against you, as it catches and starts to grow... Every time you're expecting a rain event, get your seed mix out and go back through with very light over light overseeding. It, it, people throw way too much seed down, and plants actually choke themselves out. So get a good, you know, apply your your seed mix at about for initial establishment with a, a, a wide variety. You know, maybe you're going to use 10 pounds to the acre. That's probably a bit heavy, but it's it's, it's okay. When you go back through, what I'm talking is across a whole, a whole three-quarter acre, you know those red Solo cups that when we were kids and we all went to kegger parties we drank out of? Maybe one of those full of a seed mix. And just spot seed it wherever it's not coming in or you see like it's coming in there but it's all one thing. Well, that's great. That one thing's holding it. Throw a little bit of your seed mix there. Just little tosses. Every time right after a rain event, go do that. For about the next year. Once it can sustain the goats so-so, get them in there and get your paddocks really tight. Small paddocks. And move them every day. And let them improve it from there. Those are my thoughts. Um, that's as specific as I can be to your, your issue without knowing more individually about it. But that's what I would do if I were in your situation based on what I know at this point. Let's take another one. Actually, uh, You know what? It's time that we hear from Stephen Harris. I want to back up on the two other things. The one other thing, though. Uh, the last guy talked about double canning. If that threw anybody for a loop, what he's talking about, I call it copy canning. And uh, with that, let's go ahead and hear this question for Steve Harris, and I'll play his answer. Hi, Jack. Got a question for Stephen Harris. Do I need to ground my portable generator? I purchased a portable generator a while back, and in the instructions, it says that I need to drive a steel rod or metal rod to the ground and ground it to the generator. I don't remember hearing about this in Stephen Harris's uh, generator show. Could you, you know, please tell me if I have to do this? I appreciate it. Thanks. Bye. Hi, this is Steve Harris with the expert panel calling in to answer your question. The short answer and the only answer is no. You do not need to drive a six-foot copper rod into the ground with a pole or a sledgehammer to hook it up to your generator so you can provide a ground. It's a long story. It's an old story. It's a worthless story. It's a story about lawyers 
there is nothing wrong with running the generator, plugging in, in an extension cord, and running it into your house. You are not going to run into any problems. Why was it not in the Steve Harris three-hour generator show number one and two? Because you don't need it. If I basically, I get this written to me all the time, why didn't you talk about blah, blah, blah? It's because you don't need it. I get this with the inverters all the time. Steve, why didn't you talk about fuses going between the inverter and the battery? What type of fuse do I want to put between the inverter and the battery? Look, here's a photograph of my battery backup, and there is a picture of a 200-amp fuse between the battery and the inverter. Look, it's a long story about power and amps and power loss due to resistance being a function of the number of amps. Basically, it's Ohm's law. You are not going to take a cable the size of your index finger carrying up to 200 amperes, and you're not going to splice that cable and go down to an itty-bitty little fuse block to go through an itty-bitty little fuse to go through another little itty-bitty connector back to another connector the size of your finger. You are not going to interrupt a 200-amp circuit to put that in there. You are going to create more resistance and less capability in your inverter because you're inserting more resistance. Think about it. The cable's the size of your finger. So um, what do fuses do? Fuses blow. When do they blow? Right when you need them the most. Right when you need the inverter the most, it will fail. You've just inserted a point of failure into your system. The inverters internally have many fuses built into them. They have electronic protection circuitry. If you do something incorrect, the inverter will fault, turn on a red light, and go beep, and really try to annoy you, which means you've done something wrong. You do not need to have a fuse to blow in your inverter circuit between the inverter and the battery. You don't need to have the, the metal rod to drive into the ground for the generators. So that's a short answer. Uh, I'm not going to go into the explicit details because it's well beyond the scope of this conversation. It's just the easy answer is you don't need to do it, and don't you dare ever put a fuse between your inverter and your battery. Thank you so much. This is Steve Harris for the Expert Council. Hey, I got some really neat things I talked about on the last two expert can- councils. They're on prep1234.com. That's P-R-E-P-1234.com. And all of the great stuff I have done with Jack, all my energy and power and battery and everything shows, are at steven1234.com. Thanks a lot, guys. Talk to you later. Bye. Hello, Jack. Is it possible to own too much land? Here's the situation. I live on 20 acres outside of a medium-sized urban area. I have the opportunity to add on the landlocked 40 acres that adjoins the rear of my property. My home site is comprised of approximately 20% forest with the remainder pasture, ponds, and creek. I have a large garden and raise chickens for personal use. The additional land I could acquire is all forested with a combination of high ground and swampy areas. I've always heard that if a neighbor's land is available, you should buy it. My only hesitancy has to do with finances. I still owe a lot on my home, but it will be paid off by the time I retire in 15 years. I can get the additional 40 acres for next to nothing. However, it would add about $5,000 to my annual property tax bill. This is money I would otherwise be saving to provide for a comfortable retirement. While there are certainly ways to make some income off my land, so far I haven't taken the initiative. I am uncertain as to whether this extra 40 acres of forest could provide much additional income. However, I like the security of knowing no one could ever build behind me, and my dream is to be able to pass down the entire 60-acre parcel either to my kids or to the public as a food forest learning center slash nature preserve. Am I being greedy? Thanks for providing your perspective on this. Okay, I was like, buy it, buy it, buy it right up until the $5,000 a year in taxes. Um, I don't know where anybody lives that's five grand for 40 acres of undeveloped forested land. I would check into a couple different things. One thing might be, 
the $5,000 might be based on you basically merging it to your property. So since your property is improved, this other property is improved. If it were purchased and held as a separate parcel, it may, not will, may not have quite the tax burden. Sounds to me like you live somewhere in the Northeast or like over toward Wisconsin and Madison or something like that. Somewhere with a lot of pain in the ass yuppies or West Coastish. Because uh, 20 to 40 acres of forested land unimproved here in Texas wouldn't break the $1,000 barrier on property taxes unless you lived in Yuppieville. And they were saying, hey, if you put yuppies on there, it would be worth you know more money. So eh, see if there's any way to mitigate that. Because then this is the rest of my answer to that. If you had an acre <laughs> and you had the opportunity to get 40, I'd say, you know, you probably should. You got 20, you're probably getting nowhere near the full utilization out of that 20 that you could possibly get. So my decision on getting that 40 acres would be this. Unless my ass can make about $5,000 a year with that land some way, I'm probably not buying it in your situation. If it was me, and I'm sitting on three, and let's say there was 40 behind me instead of six, I'd be hard-pressed not to buy it. And I can bet you I can figure out how to make $5,000 a year off of uh, 40 acres of land. I might, if I were you, before you make this decision, go to a timber company and say, with select, I don't want clear cut, with selective harvest, would you want to come in and appraise this and tell me what you'd pay me for the timber on this property? Um, with you know a harvest of no more than 25% of the trees. And usually they're not interested in that, but you never know. If you got anybody around you that does urban lumber and stuff like that that's more into things like that, they might be interested in doing it. Is it something that can be opened up and turned into, let's say, it might be great land to run pastured pork on? We recently had a question from Insidious on the blog about this. When I say pastured pork, what people think of is a big open field with like one tree at the edge of it. It's all grass. Pork Pigs don't really like to be out in the sun baking like that. They like the woods. They like forest. And they have a tendency to open things up. And by putting in some rows and some glades and stuff like that, you know, you and you can make some real money on 40 acres with pastured pork, especially if it's not like super steep and a little bit easier to move them through it. But it ain't easy. It is work. So if you were to find someone locally that's already doing pastured pork that wants more land that would be interested in maybe some sort of lease profit share agreement would be another way to do it. If you could put a couple cabins on it that you rent out for a few hundred bucks a month each or something like that. So what I'm telling you is I'm not taking on a $5,000 bill annually for property tax, for wooded property, unless I can find some way to at least offset the tax on the property so that it, the net cost is close to zero, especially if I'm already sitting on 20 acres giving me primarily all I need. So the answer to the question is, can you own too much land, is yes, it depends. Okay, So the way that you change that is to translate the land into something profitable enough with as little effort by you as possible to offset the expense. And if you can't do that in your situation, I'd say don't do it. Uh, somebody else with a different situation might have a totally different way of looking at that. The fact that you can get it for almost nothing, though, is very tempting. I don't really understand that. Um, you know, and uh, next to nothing is different in people's minds. Some people would say, well, $1,000 an acre, 40 grand, that's nothing for land. And I'd go, yeah. We can buy land like that all the time here in Texas. So, especially when you're buying 40 acres and up, not so much. Uh, some people would say, well, it's 100 bucks an acre. Oh, I, I, I think there's some way you can make money with that. So, look at the profit side, or at least the break-even side of the financials. Um, even if you were to be able to make $4,000 by leasing it to hunters, four-gun lease on 40 acres, $1,000 a head. Depending on where you live, that might be like, oh, geez, no, I'm going to go down to state game lands, right? Or it might be like, holy crap, that's a deal. Where do I sign up? And so there's always ways to monetize land, especially when you have 20 acres adjoining it. So, you know, you might say, well, my 10-acre belt here is also available. So that's 50 acres. 
Um, you know, put four people on there. Put four people on there at eight hundred bucks. You're at thirty two hundred dollars. Now you're only twelve hundred bucks into it. See, so don't just think like agricultural. Think like what can I do to generate money with this piece of property? If you can, then it starts to make a lot more sense. If it's just gonna sit there and suck five grand out of your pocket every every year, uh uh-uh, uh baby. Um <laughs> over ten years that's fifty thousand dollars. That's fifty grand. And that's if you don't get any interest on it at all. I I would be especially now when I start to factor in you're saying I'm gonna my house will be paid for at retirement in fifteen years. Okay, now that's five grand at fifteen years is seventy five thousand dollars in your retirement account versus sitting on a piece of land. Now, here's how we, we, we figure that out. If next to nothing really is next to nothing, and we look at that land and think, well, it could be worth a lot more than $75,000 when I'm ready to retire, now we start to look at it as part of the retirement portfolio. So there's other ways that we can do that. So you might have a timber company come in and say, if we just sit on this land, Based on current marketable prices, if we allowed a 50% cut, what would be the value of the existing timber on this property based on average growth rate at 15 years? And they might want, you know, 500 bucks to do an estimate for you on that. They're going to say, you can't hold me responsible. or I don't want to hold you responsible. You probably won't be in business in 15 years. I'm just trying to make a decision whether to buy this land or not. Because you might be willing to say at that point, you know, let's cut an acre this year. And let's 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 go ahead and let some local church group come in and reseed it to regrow into a more uh, useful forest. And then let's cut it. And, and uh, 40 acres, you, you know, most people don't live 40 years after retirement. An acre a year is the yield off of the property. There would be a lot of things you might be able to do with sell pieces of that property down the road. So then you look at that side of it. So that's how you have to approach this. Can this make me money or give me a solid ROI that exceeds putting the cash into a relatively safe investment? Because you should not be leveraged into seriously risky investments when you're only 15 years from retirement. You should be in the very moderate to low-level risk investment with the majority of your money, especially this extra five grand a year. Anyway, with that, let's go ahead and take another one. Hi, Jack. This is Mason in North Georgia. And I have a question about blackberry. How do you stake up or trellis blackberries without getting absolutely mangled? A little background. I tried to stake up my blackberries, and I got absolutely mangled. Uh, seriously, I've got some prime gem and prime gem, primacane blackberries, and, man, they just really want to reach out and touch someone. Those thorns are alive. They reach out and grab you. What are some trellising uh, strategies or staking strategies uh, to keep them contained? They're not really planted up against anything. They're kind of in a a free arc around some trees, and I'm just looking for ways to keep them managed. Appreciate any input you have. And on a related note, Jack, we really appreciate when you answer some of our dumb questions and you take it seriously. This stuff, we just haven't been doing it, and uh, I know it seems like a dumb question at times when you've been doing it all your life, but as we start to get these new skills and new strategies, it's really helpful to have a teacher that does not mind explaining it to somebody and not treating them like they're stupid. So we appreciate that, Jack, and uh, have a great day. Bye-bye. Well, you know, it's interesting because you have primocane blackberries, and the varieties you have are also what we call semi-erect, so they only need so much staking. Uh, and trellising is a better way to look at this, or wire tying. So here's one advantage you have, if you're willing to do it. A primocane blackberry can be once a year just cut to the ground. Just cut to the ground and you get a, a late crop off of the, the first year canes, and next year you just cut them to the ground again. And that would make your life really easy. You are shortchanging yourself an early crop, though, because a primocane will produce twice a year. Once toward end of spring and once toward beginning of fall. And they do this because they fruit on both first and second year canes. That's why they're called prima cane versus most cane fruits are flora cane, which means second year cane. So let's talk about how you do this with a flora cane. And, and that would be the way you do it with a prima cane if you want to stake it and if you want to get your two crops. What you really want to do with cane fruits if you're in a production-minded model, is run stakes in rows. 
maybe 10 feet apart, maybe 8 foot apart, whatever works for you. Run a wire or two, like a trellis, between the stakes. And simply tie your top canes up to the top wire. It doesn't need to be a really heavy, weight-yielding, uh, bearing thing, because the canes are semi-erect. They are semi-self-supporting. You're, you're basically holding them up, not staking them up. Okay? What you do with a prima cane bear, or a flora cane berry, a normal blackberry, is this. At the end of the season, when the leaves are falling off so that you can see what you're doing, you go in and take all your old wood, all your old canes, and you cut them off right at the bottom and you take them away. You get them out of there. Then you take your new growth, this, this springs to falls growth, and you tip it back at about, depending on what variety and how high you want them, I would generally tip back at about two to three feet, depending on what's available. So to tip back means you just simply prune the end off. And you tie up that new cane to the wire. And then next year, you have all this new growth coming in below, all your fruits on the stuff tied to the wire. You leave it alone. You wait till fall. It goes dormant again. The leaves fall off. You can see what you're doing. And you know which ones to cut off because they're all the ones that are tied. So you cut off all the ones that are tied. You untie them, take them away. And then you tie up your, your next year's canes and you tip them back. That's it. If you do that, you're not going to get all tore up, right? If you're trying to stake a blackberry in spring, you've got a problem. So you can either just let it go this year and prune out your old wood in the fall and, and tie up your new wood. Or if you want to, and they're not that established anyway yet, go ahead and prune them a couple inches above the ground and let all that new growth come in this year. And you'll still get a fall crop. In the fall, choose what you want to keep. As, as, as though it was second year canes, stake them up, tie them up, tip them back, prune all the excess out, and start managing them the way that I just said. That's how you do it. If you have one sitting there, the, the easiest thing to do for one blackberry is probably to put some sort of uh, a TP-like or tomato cage-like structure around it that holds it in, and then again, every fall... Your, your old wood, prune it out. So that's your, your wood that would be three years old if you left it there. And the reason we're going to prune it out is it's going to die. When you look at a blackberry, a raspberry, all your cane fruits, there's no three-year-old canes that are alive. They come up one year, they fruit the second year, and they die. And new canes come. That's how they work. That's why I don't like them as an edible hedge. Because there's, they're a maintenance issue, and building them into like a permanent structure is somewhat difficult. Though with enough of them, they, they effectively act that way anyway. So, so that's how you handle it. Um, the other option is just tip it back so it stays manageable in size. When it grows, pick it, except that some of your canes are going to fall to the ground. And then in the fall, prune out your dead wood. Always wait till the fall to prune your blackberries because with all the leaves off, you can see what you're doing. Wear gloves and long sleeves, and you're not going to get it all torn up. And then the last option with your primacanes, like Prime Jim and Prime Jam, would be that nuclear option. Just prune it to the just prune it a couple inches above the ground every year. Pick your berries in your fall fall crop. Prune it to the ground again. You can do that. You're just again you're costing yourself half your yield, which is the main reason people grow. A Promocane Blackberry, or a Promocane Blackberry. Anyway, with that, let's go ahead and take another call. Hey, Jack. Um, I've got my apple trees in the, just planted them in the ground, uh, over this weekend. And now I'm wondering how, what, how do I go about pruning them? Uh, I've got them planted about 10 feet apart. I'm trying to give me a little mini orchard going. And, uh, I'm not sure what to do as far as the pruning goes. And, uh, all that. Can you uh, cover that on one of your shows? Thank you. Bye. Oh, just one more thing on the blackberries before I do this apple question, which will be the last one of the day, is there are um, cultivars of blackberry and raspberry that do not require wire tying or trellising at all. They're, they're called erect varieties. Uh, I don't know of a truly erect variety that's also a primocane variety just yet. 
Uh, again, the, the, the prom gym and pond jam are a semi erect, so they don't completely just fall over, uh, but they don't, fr they're freestanding, I think is actually the term, not erect. Nobody makes stupid jokes about that. We're, we're, we're not in second grade, guys. Anyway, so the apple thing. So the question of how do I prune the apple tree on some levels is like if I have a stone that I want to make into a statue, where do I start taking off the material to create the head? Well, if you have a 50-foot stone and you want a 25-foot statue, the first thing you do is cut it in half. If you have a 10-foot stone and you want a 5-foot statue, you're going to cut it in half. If you have a 10-foot high stone and you want a 3-foot statue, you're going to cut it in a third, roughly, a little bit bigger so that you have room to work, right? Okay, so when you're, when you're pruning a tree, your, your primary uh, desire in the beginning is to create what we would call a scaffold a place where your primary branches come out and fork into maybe four branches, vase-like with stone fruits, a little bit more uh, arm-like, I guess you'd call it, with apples, with a, c a central leader. If you're doing a larger tree, you'll have one branch that continues up and helps out fill out the canopy of the tree. So when you're looking at your apple trees, what you have to say to yourself is, well, what? don't worry about your rootstock, screw that. What height do I want to maintain this tree at? So at a 10-foot spacing, the maximum height and canopy that you really want to do is 8 feet. Okay, so you have it, the tree goes out 4 feet in all directions from the trunk. So you'd have it, and then you'd have an 8-foot canopy and roughly about 8 foot to the highest branches on the tree, and you'd want to maintain it there. If you want it to be as big as it can be in the environment you've put it in. If it's a mini orchard or a backyard orchard, You got room, you can throw more trees in there, you can throw some bushes between them and maybe train to a six foot or even a four foot canopy. It's up to you. But when you think about the width of that canopy, think about almost a uniform height. So if I'm going to have a, a four foot canopy, I'm going to have maybe a five to six foot tall tree at that point. Maybe. Right. So then you got to think back down to my scaffold, my main branches that come out that I trained to come out laterally before they go up. And I want them strong and I don't want to. Tight V, I want them more like closer to a 90-degree angle out from the trunk. That's where my scaffold is. So I need to cut the main trunk just above where I want my scaffold, maybe six inches above there. And I want to look for, for either existing branches that can be trained in that position or buds that are going to work for me. So I might go a little higher or a little lower because there's no buds here. And there's buds here, and there's a good amount of bud on this side, this side, this side, and this side. One of them's going to turn into something I can train to scaffold my tree. Okay? So that's how you're going to do it. You're going to work backwards from what you want the tree to look like. This is hard for people, because what happens is you go out and you buy a tree. It's like six and a half foot tall. It's got a couple weird limbs coming off of it. And you stick it in the ground, and you realize, well, it's not six and a half foot tall. It's five and a half foot tall, because a foot of that was the pot. And it shrinks down to the ground, and you look at it, and you think to yourself, I need to prune this thing at about chest height for what I'm doing, let's say. And all the branches and stuff that look really interesting are way up above there, and that means you're basically cutting the tree in half almost. And your human instinct is, well, I've, I'm taking away all of this stuff the tree's done for itself. Well, it's probably sat in a pot or in a bare root situation. It's probably not been professionally pruned. It was just grown And, and put it out there and sit in a box store, and it's probably not shaped right. Now, if by, by all means, if you look at the structure of the tree, and there's primary branches that are either trained right or still flexible enough to be trained right, that are about the height of the scaffold you want, maybe tip those back a little bit, but don't cut that off. That's great. But I think you'll find very seldom do you really have a nice scaffold shape unless you're buying a tree from a nursery that sold it to you, pruned that way, and charged you a little extra because they did so. All right, so if it came from Home Depot and Lowe's, it's almost 100% that a significant portion to manage this way needs to be cut off. The other thing I'm going to recommend to everybody that's you know, fretting about their trees and their backyard orcharding, get over to DaveWilson.com at Dave Wilson Nursery and read the Backyard Orchard Culture article there. And, and, and learn about how to do that. And he's really intensive with what he's doing. Sometimes four trees in one hole. And making what looks like a multi-graft out of four separate trees. And sometimes just trees really close together. But the technique is the same 
for a larger tree. You just go up to the size you want. Read that article and look up, and I'll put a link to that article in the show notes, and look up Dave Wilson Orchard video. Just put that into YouTube and start watching his videos. He has the best stuff I've seen. Some of it's older, it's a little bit lower resolution and what have you, but when it comes to pruning trees and understanding the actual management of a tree, best stuff that I've seen has come from Dave Wilson. So again, I'll have a link to uh, to that page there for you. But again, it's always about where do I want the scaffold? Because this is what happens. You have a tree. It has some buds on a, a limb or a trunk or whatever. Some of those buds will break and grow and some won't. But when I prune it, assuming I'm pruning it when it's dormant or just beginning to come out of dormancy, I force those buds to break. They're like, oh, crap, we lost the mothership. We have to regrow it. And they start suckering out. So understand that when you when you go to prune a branch or prune a trunk, if you see a bud, and let's say I want to train this branch outward. So I've got a, now just instead of the trunk, I've got a limb. And the limb's coming out some, but then it, it curves straight up, like 90 degrees up. And I go, I don't want that. So I want to prune off that, that straight up thing. Well, what I want to do is I want to prune it to where there's a bud that's pointing in the direction I want to encourage the limb to grow. Because that bud's going to break when I prune above it. And I want to prune above it about an inch. Because what's going to happen is I'm, where I prune, I'm going to have some dieback. And if I prune too close to it, it'll die back and take out the bud eventually. And maybe, maybe not right away. Maybe I've got this tree starting to look really good and all of a sudden that spot dies and the whole limb dies or a limb falls off. So I can prune above it. Now let's say I want to prune above it, but there's a lot of other buds in directions I don't want the tree to grow. I prune above it, and I rub off the buds to put all the energy into the bud that I want to encourage. Let's say that bud doesn't make it. Well, I encourage one of the lower buds that are going in the same direction, and I rub off all the buds, and when a tree goes dormant, I prune off that piece. So pruning is something that... We make it more scary than it is, but it is good to know what you're doing, and you want good airflow and good sunlight into the fruit so it can ripen, and you want to think about, again, how big do I want the tree? So if I want a six-foot tree, and I scaffold it at five-foot, I'm not going to get a six-foot tree. right? I'm going to get an eight-foot tree. So if I want a six-foot tree, I probably want to scaffold that at about three feet. So I have about three feet of vertical growth to go along with about three feet of outward growth to get a six-foot canopy. And I'm probably still going to end up with close to it. Like, I'm going to have some pieces of the top going up around seven feet if I do that. If I want a tree where I can reach over and touch the top, and I'm a you know almost a six-foot guy, and that means I can reach to the top of a tree at about seven feet, but I can't get in there, right, because the canopy's too big. So now I need a tree where the top's about five to six feet. Then my, can- then my scaffold needs to be weighed down like two and a half, three feet. And it's really hard for people to get that. And they're like, I'm going to cut this this big, giant six-foot stick with all these other sticks coming out of it, and I'm going to cut it off at three feet where there's no sticks coming out of it or one little one. It's okay. As long as you do it at the right time of year, it'll start breaking bud. Now, what do you do if you have a tree that really needs to be scaffolded there, but it's already in flush growth for the year? Let it go. Prune it when it's dormant. Take it down when it's... Let it, let it, let it get all the energy it can out of those leaves and, and do its thing for a year, and then scaffold it the following year. But it's important to get a handle on the size of a tree as young as possible because it's much easier to keep a tree small than make a big tree small. There's a point where they get to a certain size, you're just not bringing it down ever again. Even if you, you coppice it, it's going to grow back with such vigor, it's going to be hard to maintain at a lower level. So get that scaffold set, which again is those first lateral branches at the height you want, and everything works easy from there. All we do is maintain after that. With that, I I hope you guys enjoy the show. It is a little bit shorter than normal for a Friday show, but I think we had seven really great questions, diverse stuff, all different kinds of things to talk about and look at today. Hope you enjoy your weekend. If you're coming here tomorrow, remember again, you should have the document in your email box by now. If you didn't get it, you can get it from the show notes today. It'll only be there for one day. And again, if you have used my cell phone number, folks, I will forward your calls to the CIA or something else devious like that. I've only ever had one person ever do that. So I think it's more important that the attendees have access to the document than, the, than, you know, than not. So with that, uh, again, have a great weekend. 
Enjoy your Friday, Friday, Friday. And with that, this is Jack Spirgo with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. Sometimes we forget we are what we eat. I don't know the answer. It's like there's nothing I can do. It's the price we pay, I guess, and we follow all the rules. There's a better way to do this. Let me show you a better way. Shut up.